Green Day. I mean, come on. That's like between that and the story Bobby just told. That's good enough for this morning, don't you think? I mean, I'm telling you, the whole album is very interesting, and it's all about that um, sort of what what are we doing and what's going on, and then. But the the way they end it is interesting. The way they end the album was with a song called "Ordinary World," and the answer that they so it's all problem, 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 and then the answer they give at the end is. Uh, well, we live in an ordinary world, so we just kind of have to deal with it. That's kind of the answer. So um, I, I've just found it fascinating. I've listened to this album probably 20 times over the last uh, week since I got it. And uh, I, what I've recognized, for one thing, is that a song, like one song, can actually say a lot, right? Uh, and, and again, they do kind of a masterful job of describing the story that they find themselves in, right? Um, there's trouble all around, and I think it's not just trouble in our culture, but I think most of us have a sense that there's trouble in our lives at some level. Um, each of us kind of feels some sort of trouble even as we sit here this morning. There's something that you brought in. We all kind of come in to a gathering like this with stuff, right? So um, here's the really interesting thing about the Christmas story. You're wondering what this has to do with Christmas at all. But here's the thing. Uh, Luke, who is the most detailed and precise of all of the gospel writers, uh, when, when in Luke's gospel, um, things are, are well thought through and well written. Mark, uh, Mark's gospel is like short and sweet and to the point. John is sort of this philosophical thing. Matthew is about Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. But Luke has this really sort of historical thing to it. So Luke is very precise, and there's a lot going on in the, in the gospel of Luke. And interestingly enough, as the one who is the most detailed, Luke actually records five songs in the Advent story, just the Advent story. So in two chapters, there are five songs, right? Elizabeth has a song. Elizabeth is Mary's cousin who gets pregnant with John the Baptist. Mary has a song. Zachariah, who is Elizabeth's husband, has a song. Simeon, a prophet we meet right after Jesus's birth, has a song. And the angels who announce Jesus's birth have a song. There's five songs in two chapters. That's a lot of songs. And they're there uh, purposefully. The lyrical poetry that shows up over and over again in these are intentional focal points in the Advent story. So as we're reading the story and we come across one of these songs, it's it's sort of an invitation to really, really focus in. And today we're going to look at the longest and possibly the most beautiful of all of them. So as we continue, you guys have been walking through the Christmas story. Today we land in Mary's story, and we're going to focus on Mary's song, a song that Mary sings that uh, has, has been, uh, again, is a deep and important part of her own personal story. So um, we're going to pick it up uh, where, uh, before where we pick this up in Mary's song, Mary's been told by an angel that she will give birth to a son, that her son will be the promised Messiah. And of course, Mary has lots of questions about that, right? Uh, but she responds to this big, huge surprise by God uh, by, lay, by leaning in. Right? In, in what are very famous kind of words, she responds by saying, Oh, well, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me according to your word, which is a huge, huge thing for her to say given the context that she's in, right? I mean, this is a very difficult thing. She is in the midst of troubled times. When the angel comes and says, I have great news, Mary's probably going, That's not great news, right? So, um, so but she responds by saying, 
may it be to me according to your word, which is a great response. Um, so that's where we're going to pick up the story. That's a whole sermon in itself, but we're going to pick up the story in verse 39. So just listen a little bit, and then you're going to see the song up here, up here, but just listen to this. At that time, so after Mary experiences this, at that time, Mary got ready and hurried to the hill country, a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zachariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. Uh, this is Mary's cousin, Elizabeth, uh, who was pregnant with John the Baptist. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting... And this alone is really interesting to me. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit in a loud voice. And you know, don't miss the little details here. Uh, in a loud voice. So it's like the two of them. <laughs> and in a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. Now, they have had no interaction. There wasn't like texting and emailing going back and forth between them uh, when, they sh when, when Mary shows up. So Elizabeth receives a prophetic word here in this context. So don't miss that either. And then Mary responds. And here's how he responds. So listen well to her song. You're going to see it up here too. She says, my soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers." So this is a really important song, and we're going to look at it in detail. But kind of to mix some metaphors here, the song really gives us three lenses through which we can view, really, the entire Christmas story. Uh, and the three points of view, three different perspectives, uh, with each one, the field of vision kind of widens, right? So as we jump in, maybe you want to think about your own perspective this morning. You know, again, what is that stuff you came in here? Where do you find yourself this season? You know, as you walk around and you see all the stuff, you know, are you joyful? Uh, are you frustrated? Are you concerned? Are you worried? You know, where is your focus right now? Uh, last night, my wife and I went to, uh, you know, the Grove and experienced the, the weirdness of L.A. Christmas. Have you, and if you've been to the, it's just this weird, it, it, whenever I go there at Christmas time, I go, this is very L.A. Anyway, so we were there, and, but I didn't have this response of, oh, look, it's joyful, it's Christmas. It was more like, holy crap, what are we doing? But anyway, so what, what are you feeling this morning when you think about your own life in this season of the year, right? What are you wrestling with? Um, finding ourselves inside of this story this morning is going to be all about sort of seeing it widen and seeing ourselves as part of it. Um, so it starts in this uh, specific thing individually. So the first lens is sort of what I'm going to call a personal perspective that we see here in Mary's song, right? Back to the first three verses of the song, or the first three yeah, verses. She says uh, in two sentences, she references herself six times. She says, my soul glorifies the Lord. 
My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has been mindful of the state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. So she's really personalized this experience, right? For Mary, Christmas is not about some kind of vague, unfocused, good feeling that she might have, like kind of the popular idea today that Christmas is sort of whatever you make it, you know? Uh, Mary's focus begins in a very specific and a very personal place. I love the message translation of uh, chapter 1, verse 48 here. She says, God took one look at me, and look what happened. I'm the most fortunate woman on earth. So she's really personalized this. this is the, she's in this story, obviously, uh, but she uses interesting words here. She uses the word soul and spirit to characterize herself in these first three little verses here. And these are words that are very personal, right? Um, you, don't, you don't say to someone, uh, if, if someone comes over and says, hey, how you doing? You don't go, well, my soul is tired, right? Or, or you know, my spirit is weary. When you use those kind of words, uh, it, it's intense. And so this is important. You can see she's really personalized it. They reveal kind of the depth at which she's experiencing this. So at her deepest levels, this story that God has her in, first of all, is, is personal, right? Now, here's the interesting thing to think about, about Mary kind of bursting forth with song here. It's likely that she meditated on her life and what was going on as she traveled to see Elizabeth. Elizabeth probably lived two or three days journey away. So the whole time, Mary's on the road, and she's probably pondering all of these scripture passages that she learned as a young Jewish girl growing up in a pious family, particularly the passages, because there's a lot of them, that contain stories of women that God had surprised with pregnancies. So Mary's traveling, and you know, I don't know about you, you ever, like whenever I drive somewhere, it's like I love just that opportunity just to go somewhere, because like I just kind of sit, and like I let my mind just kind of think about stuff, and you know, I'm pondering things. So over a two-day period of time, she's pondering, and she's immersed in Scripture, because that's who she is, that's the, that's the culture and the, the family that she grew up in. And so all these Scripture things start coming back to her, all these stories start coming back to her, and she begins to see as she's immersed in this perspective how she is a part of God's big story. Um, she sees her present in the light of God's consistent activity through time. So she sees herself as part of something bigger. And suddenly, all the clues about the Messiah that she learned growing up become clear to her. I mean, I can see this happening in a very personal way. Now, again, we would expect Christmas to be personal for Mary because, well, she's Mary, right? Um, but here's the thing. I, I think that God wants it to be as personal for each one of us as well. Um, I mean, the interesting thing about Mary's uh, passage here is that you see Scripture show up over and over and over. She's immersed in that in that, um, in that, uh, uh, that kind of context. That's kind of how she grew up. So it's personal. It's, it's a big story, but it's also very personal. So let's think about us and as we think about the story of Christmas and finding ourselves in that just for a minute. Um, you know, we live in a culture where Christmas is sort of a vague, warm fuzzy, right? It's, it's a nice thing. Like, again, when I was at the Grove last night, you know, <laughs> 
in addition to the dancing girls and all the other stuff they had on the trolley, the top of the trolley, they had like this little gingerbread guy, and he's like waving his hands, and everybody's happy. And then the snow starts to fall, and you know, like the, uh, the fountain things go up, and, and you know, it's just, it's just crazy. But everybody's like, oh, isn't this great, right? So in our culture, that's how we experience, I think, a lot of Christmas. It's kind of this vague, kind of warm, fuzzy thing that, hey, this is a good thing. Um, but it's meant to evoke a specific and personal response from us. Specific in that Christmas really is about Jesus, and personal in that what are we going to do with that part of the story, right? Um, Here's a really interesting thing. Have you ever noticed how many of the Christmas carols that evoke warm, fuzzy feelings for us? So think about, you know, silent night, holy night, all is calm, all is bright. Or, you know, O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. You know, all these things. Have you ever noticed how many of these warm, fuzzy songs are about people who at the coming of the Messiah slept through it? Think about that. So many of them, because again, this romanticism that we bring into it, it's like, oh, everyone was asleep and it was this great experience. Uh, And so we have this kind of warm, fuzzy experience about it. But I I found a guy, his name is uh, Ken Geyer, and he he writes these kind of more realistic pictures of things. So uh, uh, this is is quite realistic. So just listen to his sort of uh, um, description as he imagines himself in the story right there with Mary on that Christmas, a little bit further on from where we are now. But he says this, the Messiah has arrived. Elongated head from the constricting journey through the birth canal, light skin as the pigment would take days or even weeks to surface, mucus in his ear and nostrils, wet and slippery from the amniotic fluid, the son of the Most High umbilically tied to a lowly Jewish girl. The baby chokes and coughs. Joseph instinctively turns him over and clears his throat. Then he cries. Mary bares her breast and reaches for the shivering baby. She lays him on her chest, and his helpless cries subside. His tiny head bobs around on the unfamiliar terrain. This will be the first thing the king learns. So with barely a ripple of notice, God steps into the warm lake of humanity. Where you would have expected angels, there were only flies. Where you would have expected heads of state, there were donkeys and a few haltered cows and the nervous ball of sheep, a tethered camel, the the furtive scurry of curious barn mice. Except for Joseph, there is no one there to share Mary's pain or her joy. There are angels announcing the Savior's arrival, but only to a band of blue-collar shepherds. Yes, there is a magnificent star that shines in the sky to mark his birthplace, but only three foreigners bother to look up and follow it. Thus, in the little town of Bethlehem, that one silent night, the royal birth of God's Son tiptoes quietly by as the world slept. So here's the thing. Will you sleep through it this year? And what I mean by that is, you know, will we, um, you know, receive the warm, fuzzy feelings and just kind of go, hey, you know, Christmas season, it's great? Or will we personally and specifically respond to Jesus in this time of year? There are things that God wants to do in each one of our lives all the time. And there's no better time than this time of year to kind of take it off the back burner and put it on the front and make a specific response. So I want you to think about that. Will you allow it to become personal to you, as personal as we see it is for Mary in this song? 
All right, continuing on the text here. It widens a bit with this kind of second lens. The second lens is this is not only personal, but it's prophetic, right? If you were to read Mary's song in the, the Koine Greek of the New Testament, what you would find is that something very interesting happens in verses 51 through 53. It's not as obvious in English, but at this point in Mary's song, the tenses of all the main verbs change. And if you're reading it in the Koine Greek, it, it, you kind of step back and it becomes more clear, but you don't really see it here. But just listen again to these words. It says, he has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but he has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things. He has sent the rich away empty. All the verbs here become past tense, something that's already done, right? More accurately, they become a tense in Greek that doesn't even uh, exist in English. It's called the aorist tense, and it's a tense which indicates these are absolutely finalized, completed events. So here's the prophetic perspective, right? Mary doesn't sing, uh, say that, that great things are going to happen because of the birth of Jesus. She sees them as things that have already happened. And that's really important. So her focus here is quite instructive. Um, if you're a chess player, they say that really good chess players can see the results of moves, 20 move out of any one move they make. You with me? Like they move, they can see all that's going to happen, right? This is, I think, kind of Mary's perspective. Once the move is made, the die is cast. And that's what she's saying here. She speaks prophetically with supernatural confidence that realizes that one move by God means a whole lot more than one move. And that's what she's seeing here. And this is really important. She sees that what God is doing, God has already done. You with me? Now, scholars call this part of Mary's song the great reversal, right? Again, he has, he has scattered the proud. He has brought down the rulers. He has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things. He has sent the rich away empty. It's a reversal, right? And, and it follows along a theme that so much of Scripture follows along, this complete reversal of human opinions of greatness and significance, that God is choosing to restore everything in a way we never would have guessed. It's not about the powerful and the rich. Um, there's a revolutionary element in Mary's song here that sees the world as turned upside down. She sees here already what Jesus will talk about later in his life when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are the persecuted. And again, these things, friends, are not just sort of fuzzy platitudes. These are things which have already happened. That's what she says. It's happened today. The kingdom of God is at hand, and it's starting right here, right now. Now, why is that important? Because if you believe that what God is doing, God has already done, it changes the way you live. If you believe that what God is doing, God has already done, you begin to live your life differently. 
because it's not a question mark. It's not like, well, you know, I think it's going this way. Maybe God's going to, maybe, maybe I can trust him. Maybe I can step out. No, when you believe that what God is doing, God has already done, it changes the way you live. So there's an old legend about a king who decided to offer a prize to the artist who would paint the best picture of peace. And so lots of artists turned in their work, and the king looked at all the pictures, and they got them down to two, right? And in one, there was a picture of a, a calm lake. The lake was, you know, a perfect mirror for the peaceful towering mountains all around it. Overhead was a blue sky with fluffy white crowds, uh, clouds. Everyone who saw this picture said, oh, that's the picture of peace. But the, pink, uh, the king chose the second picture. This one, too, had mountains, but they were rugged and bare. Uh, there was an angry sky above. Rain was falling. Lightning was flashing. Down the side of the mountain uh, was a, a tumbling, foaming waterfall. It didn't look peaceful at all. But if you look closer at the picture, behind the waterfall is a tiny bush growing out of a little rock and a mother bird there who had built her nest there. And there she sat in the midst of all this turmoil in peace. When people asked the king why he chose this picture, he said, peace does not mean the absence of turmoil and trouble and problems and issues. Peace means to be in the midst of all those things and still be calm in your heart. So that's living life differently, right? So just a little reality check. Mary's life at the moment she was singing this song was a picture of turmoil right? She was an illegitimately pregnant teenager who had no idea how her betrothed was even going to react. She hadn't even told Joseph about this yet, right? And she stood to live the rest of her life in shame in a society that placed a high, high value on honor. From a human standpoint, friends, her life from this moment on was a disappointment. So what did she do? She sang a song. She sang, right? How does she sing? In the middle of that disappointment. Why does she sing? How does she sing? She does it because she genuinely believes that God is on the move and that she can trust Him. That what God is doing, God has already done. Mary saw that as a completed fact. I mean, she had quite incredible faith to lean into this. She decided to live in the bigger story. Her perspective widens, and as a result, her focus gets even clearer about what she's doing in life. So maybe you're in the midst of something right now that's really hard. Maybe it would be helpful to recognize that you're in a bigger story, that you're not alone in it, that God is or wants to be at work, on your behalf, in the midst of what you're dealing with. And the question is, how can you let him do that this morning? How do you lean in? How do you sing? How do you say, you know what? I'm going to live in this bigger picture. But one more thing Mary has to teach us in this song, one more step that we take, one more, widen the focus one more time, and we're going to call it the perspective of promise. So in the last two verses, Mary sings that God, again, has already, completed fact, has helped his servant Israel, 
remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. So Mary sees the birth of Jesus as the realization of a specific promise that God had made over and over and over again in his covenant relationship with his people over thousands of years, the promise of the Messiah. So she sees this promise as being completed here. But although the promise was given at Jesus' birth, it was actually fulfilled in another way. Let me read you something from the second to the last chapter of the book of Luke. It says, It was now about the sixth hour, and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour, for the sun stopped shining. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two, and Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. But all those who knew him, including women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. Mary is in that group of women. This is how the promise is being fulfilled. This is what she was singing joyfully about. So 33 years later, from a human perspective, a hugely disappointing event takes place. From just a human perspective, it was the most disappointing kind of thing that can happen. Just from a human perspective, a good man, a great teacher, someone who honestly sought real change was executed. Just from a human perspective, so much promise was snuffed out that night. And again, from a human perspective, how can any of this possibly be good? It becomes good when you read the last chapter of the book of Luke. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. And with that, the full story of Christmas is told. The full promise comes to completion. But it's not an easy process. But that's the widest perspective of all, right? The perspective of promise. And that's the perspective that followers of Jesus get to live in. Uh, there's a great film I would recommend to you called Call and Response. It was made a few years ago by a guy I know in the Bay Area. His name is Justin Dillon. The, the film is about human trafficking in our world, which I know you guys have been talking about here at Resonate. Um, but at one point in the movie... Justin tells this great story uh, from his research. He tells the story of some civil rights workers in the early days of the movement who went down south to kind of observe and see what was going on, and then coming back and having a conversation, I think with a government official as they come back, and, and they're asked about what they saw. And he says, uh, they, they, you know, do these people in the south, these activists, these people working for human freedom, do they really have a chance? And the answer of one of the guys who had been there was that um, the activists were underfunded and overpowered, and from a human standpoint, they did not have a chance. But, he said, they're going to win. 
why? The other guy asked. And he answered, I love this when he heard it. He goes, because they have a better song. Right? We shall overcome. You know that song? He's like, they have a better song. Friends, as followers of Christ, we have a better song. Right? I mean, I love the Green Day thing, and I, I love them as artists, but honestly, we have a better song. We don't have to wonder at the end if, well, you know, it's just an ordinary world and we just have to kind of live in it because that's the best we can do. We have a better song. A song that has a personal, prophetic promise in it for every single one of us and for the world around us. A promise that was fulfilled is being fulfilled and will be fulfilled. And that's just not, not just Mary's story or the story of Christmas. It's our story. And so as we respond today, realize that. You know, the table here is a picture of our story and God's story coming together in real space and time. You know, it's a physical, tangible reminder that God entered into physical space and time with us. So this morning, as you come and receive the body and the blood, as, as you experience this very tangible moment, maybe you can turn this into a very tangible moment of trust. Maybe you can say, okay, that thing, that stuff that I came in with, um, I'm going to live in this bigger picture in it. Gracie, why don't you come? So what you can do this morning as Gracie plays, you can come and you just pull off a piece of the bread and dip it into the cup and recognize that you're part of something, uh, again, <laughs> this story that's way before us and goes on way after us and is way bigger than us. On the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said to his disciples, this is my body broken for you. And then after the supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant or the new promise in my blood. So why don't you stand? Let me invite you to come as you feel led, as we sing together, just come.